Please, please welcome back the filmmakers. <laughs> This is a movie that obviously so much thought went into in, in, in constructing it and shaping it, um, as well as just making it and being in that site of that, you know, the factory. So I wonder if you could just walk us through, you know, developing the movie, making it, and, and a bit about your, your thinking about the editing of it. Um, there was really uh, not that many ways to write this or preconceive this on paper and you just steal reality in segments and um, over time maybe you know whatever that you see can be uh, developed with trial and error because I, I don't believe in having had thought before so and could you just tell us a bit about the, the site like the factory and where how you found it or how you chose that I, uh, as, as a child, I used to go to a similar factory like this that was owned by my uh, maternal grandfather. Now the factory is defunct, but those childhood memories stayed in my mind, and I guess I was in some way chasing that dragon to recreate that childhood experience. Um, one thing that is kind of interesting just from the start, from the the premise of picking a factory as, as a spot um, is that machines have their own rhythm and editing is so much about rhythm. Uh, so I wonder if you could talk a bit about uh, you know, how that entered into your thinking about the, the editing because you kind of have, this is, this is simplifying it more than you actually do in the movie at all, but the idea of like a machine's rhythm versus a, a human rhythm, which is one of, one of the few dialectics in the movie, I think. Yeah, uh, essentially, uh, they, not they, but the humans have to uh, adapt to the machines and at some point they, they do become like it in, in some way of way of seeing, I guess. But, I mean, they, they would say they still have their human agency, but I really think it's been taken away. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's the double meaning of the title in a way. Machines... I guess they're all machines as well. Um, I mean, it's, it's sort of, it's reflected in, in the, the different ways you have of shooting the factory as well. Um, I mean, you first have this opening shot that's very striking of, of this kind of bellows, of the flame, and then after that you have a, a long shot. Um, is that with a steady cam that you shot, Red? It's a steady cam shot where you kind of give us the lay of the land, you know, where everyone is and what they do. Um, but then, of course, after that, you break things up more into, into shots. So that's already one more interesting editorial decision, having that long, unbroken shot, and then, you know, breaking up things after that. Yeah, I mean, uh, editorially, it could totally have been a process film, you know, like, look at how this fabric is made, step one, two, three, but um, kind of made it like a 3 a.m. infomercial about a factory. Uh, it's uh, to to have a, a more unguessable or fragmentary or kaleidoscopic structure, it, it kind of keeps the intelligent viewer on, on their seat and somehow, uh, even though there is no, there is no uh, linear logic to how we see it, uh, I think our brains can compute you know, what is happening and 
it can put uh, X and B together. But everything is, as a matter of fact, uh, nothing is um, in, in one line. It's all simultaneous. So if one thing stops, you know, uh, other things are not affected. They can keep going. No, actually, it's it's very interesting because when Raoul came to me with his first, uh, I mean, his first or his numerous first, but uh, I, I, my intuition, of course, was to create a delineation between day and night because naturally you would go towards that delineation to create a sort of time space for the time unfolding in film, but there is no such thing in this factory. And and that was you mean by no such thing day and night. Day and night, it's yeah. an ongoing flux of work and of workers coming in and out and working. So it was a very interesting notion to try to keep, and Ron was very attached to that, to keep this flux of time evolving while not creating a delineation between day and night, and to keep articulating the film in this sort of prismatic way of looking at the entire factory by looking at one detail also, you know. And that, that's something you really were attached to from the very beginning. Yeah, uh, not to whine too much about it, but uh, it, 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 it had to come from a, from a place of not knowing or not predicting or not being able to calculate or compute as a filmmaker. But uh, you really had to intuitively feel what was right. Now, this could be a general statement for most editing, but... But, but there really was no precedent or reference point to do it like this or follow this chain. It kind of really had to build by trial and error, you know. I mean, uh, maybe this will be too basic a question, but I mean, let's say you've, you know, you've shot all the material. How many hours of material did you have? Uh, total of something like 120. 120. So you have 120. I mean, what's the first thing you do in terms of approaching that? Do you, do you try out different frameworks, or and, and, and yeah, you came in at a different, different sort of later phase as well. So Brown can tell about his initial phase, yeah. and then I can jump in. Like you, you gather a lot of courage and bottle of vodka, and you <laughs> sit down and you just uh, look at everything, uh, uh, process it, mark it down, take your time. Um, uh, you start, you don't know the film when you shoot it, you know the film when you start kind of processing the footage and you're, you're struggling with what can this be, what language can this be, because there's one language you shot it with and then there's one language you construct it with, and, and, and th there's totally an inter-correlation inter between them, but it's just like a thing to be found over after many attempts. Well, I mean, in general, you know, and I, I was talking a little bit about this in the first screening we had yesterday, but there is a, a tendency in filmmaking in cinema at large to tell a story. And of course, as an editor, you serve this kind of narrative, meaning you abide by the story, and you're looking for the beginning, the middle, or the end, or not, not in that order, but not necessarily. And what was really interesting for me and challenging at the same time with this film was to veer away precisely from this very notion of storytelling and to find and to uh, identify and authentify what Rahul had seen and framed extremely precisely in his process of documenting the factory and to restitute, to give that to an audience because what's always a task in cinema is the audience. So the, the, what was really important was to create 
this translation from his gaze and his experience in the factory with time and bodies as a machine to you, to us. And to have you endure that, to have you to render, actually, that experience of work and time. And that's very rare to, to, to actually approach a film in that manner, because usually you sort out the scenes, you build up characters, you build up the story, whether you have 120, 300 of hours, 50, it doesn't matter. That's, you have a sort of methodology, but, but this film required another type of um, practice, in a way, which was really trying to to find the cinema beyond that notion of storytelling, and and for me it was it was challenging even in my position having edited so many films, and I I um, I, I enjoyed it tremendously actually. <laughs> yeah, I mean it seems to me that it's part of it is finding this balance between putting us in the moment, so you know the fabric and the sweat and the toil and but you're, you're also giving a sense of the structure behind it you know especially toward the end yeah and so you, you're kind of striking that balance because you don't want people to just be overwhelmed by the sensual the senses but you also have you also have an idea of the structure of the the labor you know all of that <laughs> the managerial aspect and all of that yeah uh, one thing that uh, might be affecting on a, on a little uh, subliminal level is that the language of the film is like I, I created conditions so that there was like a some kind of a perimeter of rules created around me and like one of them was like using a few particular focal lengths or using a few kind of like pre-programmed like visual language like static shots or no, no zooms or very little pans or things like this, and that really uh, th that puts you in your place as an audience. It, 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 it calms you down, and, and your brain can process changes. I, th I think they can process the changes a bit more efficiently without uh, less dissonance. You we were having this discussion this morning, and we were both referring to maybe you're not familiar with this filmmaker, or you are with, with Ozuwe. Ozuwe was this Japanese filmmaker who used to work with one fixed uh, position for his camera and one fixed lens, and which really in turn obliges you to stay with the cinematic experience and, and that, that, that point of view, which is key. In the, in the factory, uh, there were many things that were really simulating for a filmmaker, uh, a cinematographer, a sound designer. There was so much stimuli everywhere. Um, I wanted to... I wanted to bring vats of ammonia here so people could actually smell the space, but I had to compensate with other senses uh, on, of, with the sound and image. Uh, like, I was telling my, my DP, like, I want to shoot that, I want to shoot this, and he was like, chill, uh, you can stay here as long as you want, let's, let's work this out with dignity and, and, and just uh, sit here and relax. And, and this process kind of, um, it also make, make, makes the subjects comfortable. They, like first they might be a bit too aware, but over time, even if the camera is like 50 pounds and, and huge, uh, staring at you in the face, you kind of uh, start not caring. But it takes time. 
Well, then you have that great moment in the end. I think I was, we were just talking about this. Uh, I mean, we become aware of our viewpoint at the end when we see the, the, the manager of the factory and he's talking and then you cut to like a, a reverse shot of what he's looking at, which is a screen of what's going on in the factory, which looks identical to what we've been seeing. So you're kind of aware of the camera's eye with, with a shot like, like that. I'm not reading too much into it. Yeah, I mean, surveillance is, is uh, such a thing. Uh, you could, I mean, I, I was surveilling them. I'm, the, the bosses can just, you know, check the whole factory on their smartphones. They can be in the Alps skiing and still, like, observe their labors. It's like a baby monitor, except much more sinister. Yeah, I mean, the, the output of the factory is your baby. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> um, I, I, I want to ask him about another aspect of the movie, which is interviews like that, those sort of sit-down interviews. Um, one thing I've always wondered uh, when you're approaching structuring a documentary is how you decide to place interviews like that, because they have a different rhythm, they, they have a different uh, reality to them, because they're direct-to-camera, and, and you know, other things are observational. So it's definitely... It feels like it's very powerful material, you know, <laughs> and so where you place it, you know. So could you talk a bit about how you decide where to place things? Um, there were um, around a hundred interview subjects, yeah, but uh, maybe this is morally the wrong thing to do. But there were many times when the only thing the subjects could say was things like, "We are so happy here. We are like really, really obliged from the owner. He gave us a job." And my mind was screaming, like, how can you say this? This is so wrong. And I, I didn't want to accept, like, because it just didn't feel right. So, I, you know, what, what feels right to you is your sense of politics. You know, at the end of the day, that's what politics is, like, what you think is right and wrong. And, and I have to use my own judgment. Um, in terms of the order that we see the information come to us, and how that order determines um, your whole experience of, of, of knowing um, statistical uh, input, like this is how much we get, or this is what uh, this is what this is or that is. Uh, I think it builds up over time. It, it needs to be uh, given out. I, uh, I mean, if the boss came in first, you know, that would that would really change our perception in many ways. We could even possibly look at things from the boss's shoes. But by the time he comes, I think we have an agency we have seen for ourselves, and we can decide for ourselves if this guy's bullshitting us or not. So, yeah. uh, I mean, did you want to add something about the placement? Yeah, yeah actually. No, I think, I think I'm going to epitomize a little bit. But I think it's, we live in a time where, um, you know, um, the flux of images that we're all involved in uh, takes away a lot from the subject. And it's a paradox of our times where there's never been so many people talking and uh, delivering opinions and statistics. And, 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 and at the same time, there is a lack uh, or dematerialization of the subject. And the time that, were given, that was given on screen to these people was uh, chosen and was, this is where maybe structure came in. It's the way we hear them, the way Raoul sat with them, that took time away from their work, but also gave them a break. But it was about restituting a sort of subjectivation 
of their experience while not entering any sort of sociological um, um, truth. It is not about the sociological truth. It's about owning a sort of truth at the moment it's delivered. And I think that's what, as documentary filmmakers, editors, whatnot, we're, we ought to aim at. It, it is actually a political um, gesture and a political decision by the time you give to people to actually frame their own experience while not uttering um, uh, uh, already uh, atomized, randomized uh, experience that's um, given to you through the media. And I think, I think that while making this film, for me, I, I, I understood that we were making a, a very strong political statement that in a way was a mirror uh, or an anti-mirror to the flux of images and speech that we are all subjected to and it was trying to oblige all of us, the viewer, to confront what the flux of work and the capital, <laughs> the, the good old capital, is actually doing. And only through time of images and through time of speech could you actually experience that for real. So, yeah. I, I, there were like 30, 35 cuts of the film and I in, in the beginning for some reason I, I thought that maybe I don't need to use the interviews and this can be such a strong visual film and I'm going to let the audience decide for themselves and not give them any um, statistical stimuli um, but at this point I think I was looking at the interviews as talking heads but a talk with one of my professors really fixed that. He said, uh, don't look at this as talking heads. Please consider looking at them as human bodies. And, and that really uh, flipped something in my head. Um, especially because uh, the way it's set is just so static and, and you're kind of just forced to be there in a way. But also their, their voice does give them some kind of agency. And, and it, it, it frames, uh, it, it takes away from our subjective interpretation, and we're, that's all, it, it, it adds another layer of confrontation. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, yeah, when people say talking heads, I, I, I mean, for me, talking heads, what that means is you could replace the interview with text, <laughs> basically. But that's not the case here. The, these, are, these are interviews that are like on site, in a certain site. And yeah, the bodies, for example, the one worker who was talking, talking, talking about, you know, they're being oppressed. And then there's this really telling gesture where he looks over his shoulder, you know, and that says almost as much as everything he's spoken to. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you feel, I mean, I felt worried for him immediately when he did that because you, you feel it. So yeah, definitely. And then speaking of being aware of bodies... Um, another amazing scene is where you have the, the child who's falling asleep while working, and you just stick with him as he's falling. You know, <clears throat> that's also that was a 35-minute shot, <laughs> and he, he kept going. But but like in the in the end of the shot, like he says that I'm really tired. Please shut the camera. <laughs> so you don't even know whether he's staying awake for the factory or the camera. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
But in terms of that, it's a very interesting. We discussed it. We discussed it with Ron also. There is two shots of children. There is this one falling asleep, and it's a very long, commanding shot, both for the maker and the subject. And then there's, there, there, there's this other shot of this kid uh, pulling uh, the, the the brown fabric, and it's quite long also. And then the brown fabric falls down. And we we had a very interesting discussion because initially I was trying to expand time with this kid also. We were trying to assess how much time can we spend with each gesture or each work, each you know, each um, task that they're, they're they're doing. And so initially I had tried out three different uh, angles for that particular moment. And we we realized that by multiplying the angles on one particular task was already um, framing its reality in, in a very different way. So we peeled it off. And, and, and that was a really interesting editorial discussion, even with the kid. Remember uh, the, the kid falling asleep? Do we use the cutaway on the kid with the glove? Do we not use it? How long can we hold it? Are we going to jump cut it? I mean, because a jump cut is an information on time. So how long could we authentically stay? With this kid, one thing that really has shaped my perspective about when after making this and during this was that, um, like like painters talk about paintings, and for them the paint is of essence, or for a for a woodcutter or or, or a, the the person who makes furniture, wood is of essence. I think for the filmmaker, uh, time is is of essence. It's that material of directly most relating to cinema. And, and, and time is a, such an important unit. And, and, and the, it's kind of like a linear thing in terms of quantity. So it, it does become heavy. Yeah, it immediately makes me think of the Andrei Tarkovsky. The name of his book is Sculpting. Is it Sculpting, sculpting Time or Sculpting? Is it sculpting and Time. Sculpting and Time. So yeah, yeah. Um, just to stick with this scene where we're feeling the time of the child falling asleep, uh, I guess the angle that you ended up cho choosing is s sort of humorous, but also like deeply bittersweet because you follow that after you see the child falling asleep, falling asleep, you follow that with just some banging immediately. And then after the banging, you kind of have a montage of different people just dead asleep all over. And you, in the, but you keep the banging in the soundtrack a little. So for me, I was watching that and I was just thinking, God, I can imagine these people working and then sleeping, but they're just dreaming of work. Is how I felt that in some way. I don't know. Actually, even when they go back home uh, on their breaks, they many many of them told me that they get the sounds in their head. The sounds don't leave their heads. Uh, I myself was my ears were bleeding after two months of doing sound work. Uh, and I couldn't party for a long time. That <laughs> battle battle scars. <laughs> and and now I can't listen to motor sounds. That whenever I hear a motor, it just starts to create. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I mean, that's also another instance of how rhythm. I mean, it's, it's interesting in terms of editing because there's a rhythm to the factory and, and, and a rhythm to the sound as well that's built into it. Um, I mean, if you edit a documentary, that's you know, I, I don't know. It's it's an element that you don't have in other documentaries. It's very mechanized rhythm that's already present in the site. When you enter the space and you close your eyes and uh, without looking at your watch you just feel you feel like hundreds of different sounds uh, each making like a mega symphony 
with, with little, little rhythms all colluding together. It's uh, very overwhelming in every way and form. Uh, I mean, and that was, brings us to, to toward the end of the movie where you kind of open up with several voices in a way, with, with uh, you know, pe- people talking to the camera as a group almost. Um, and, and that wonderful shot of the fabric just flying, which is sort of feels like the fabric is finally free of everything. So, I mean, it's it, interesting to place that at the end, it makes it a feeling of freedom. I mean, that's, there you kind of put an angle on things, I like think. You give, you give us a way out. <laughs> yeah, it's for you. Uh, it's, it's for, you know I'm very delicate, so I'm you know, at the end. I need um, but I mean, that's that's interesting place at the end, and I, I just think of a shot like that, or a shot like of the blue canisters. We were talking a bit about the blue containers and placing that. That that took some work figuring out where to put that, right? It was uh, the first time I found its important importance or felt its importance. It was actually an accident. Uh, you just, you know, you at the end of the working day when you're looking at the footage, you like some things and you don't like some things, and it's always good to go again at the end of the day through the things you like and you don't like, and you're just confirming, okay, I'm going to throw this away, and for some reason this. This looking at this static blue pyramid of drums, empty drums, it it just gave me such a odd reaction in my head, like causing dissonance. But uh, I, I I think like we sometimes forget in our objectivity while editing uh, to to stray around a bit, and uh, I think the the more tenacity or audacity we have to take risks and make more wilder associations between two symbols that can really create a lot more sparks in your mind when, you, when you're forced to confront it. But in, 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 in that, I think that um, you, you were often talking about the cognitive dissonance that the film could create, and I think a good analogy is also to think about a counterpoint in music. And... and the whole history of contemporary music is actually dissonant. And dissonance is also a metaphor for uh, rage, um, for pain, um, and and the flawlessness of narratives that we're exposed to pretend to take away from that expression in a way and to remain with a cognitive dissonance that has to that has to deal with a perception, a true subjectivity on reality and not a conforming subjectivity on reality is very precious. And I think it ought to, you know, it ought to be existing more in a way rather than abiding to a a um, semi-reality television mediated reality, at least in the documentary world that we practice, yeah. Because we all are really, really, I think, acquainted or image savvy today. We're just overwhelmed with with images everywhere. Yeah. So uh, even even narrative arcs, I think, even like ten year old kids can guess what's gonna happen in a movie. It's just you know, uh, the younger they get, the more access they have and more avenues they have, and we just it's, it takes so much less intelligence these days to get these structures or or narrative arcs uh, 
it, it feels like it's coming from the same screenwriting book or something. Uh, so to kind of go against that grain in some way and not really being able to decipher any kind of um, connectedness, but yet still being forced to be within the walls of the space. I think that was pretty important. Um, I just always want to ask, uh, did you show the movie to the, to the workers? Uh, not yet. I can't take it back home. Oh, okay. I see. Um, and then an appropriate question to conclude with. When you're editing, how do you know when you're done? <laughs> Um, the, the industry uh, has a, can dictate when you're done because filmmaking enters within the paradigms of finances. So that's a real reality, but at least I am, we are lucky to exist in a world of filmmaking where the film di dictates itself, and it's a big privilege to be able to do that. In terms of that film, I think Raoul had new, he had a process and you put a dot to it, right? That's how it went. It's not finished for me, I, I don't think. For me, yeah. Like, uh, you know, uh, the, the dis difference between the whole cake and a slice of life thing? Boy, I don't tell me. You, you know, like, uh, uh, any film uh, which is trying to tell you something or see something about the real, or the, it, it has the option of... I guess we all want to, as, as artists, we want to give the whole picture, the whole truth. It's kind of like an obsessive quest. But <clears throat> uh, even a slice of that cake, if it's delicious enough, that can be, that can be good. But it should be, should be good enough. Should be so a slice of life. Yeah. All right. Thank you both so much. Thanks, Dean. Thank you.